Do you think that we're living through a unique moment right now or are people just confused by something and really it's all the same? Uh, it's definitely a different situation. If you think about where we were in 1999, 2000 with the tech boom, 2008, 2009 with the housing bubble, and now people will look back at this time as well. So we have um, super low interest rates. We have a bunch of people on Reddit moving markets. Literally, they shut uh, an investment firm down. Yep. We have uh, crypto making huge news up and down. And we also have a lot of people with changing jobs. Um, so what does it mean for the average person? Um, most good advice doesn't change over time. So should you be saving and automatically investing? Yes. Should you be thinking about the long term and choosing low cost investments? Yes, of course. Low cost means low fees? Low fees, yeah. Yeah, so for example, a lot of people don't know this, um, but anybody watching, if you go ask your parents this, you're gonna have a very shocking conversation. If you pay 1% in fees, like to a financial mm -hmm. advisor, a lot of people think 1%, no big deal. Over the course of your lifetime, guess what percentage of your gains go to the person you're paying the fees? Guess. I actually don't know. I know the answer is high. It's not 1%. People think, oh, 1%. It's 1% compounding. Correct. If you're paying 1% in fees, 28% of your returns are going to that advisor's oh, pocket. Over what period of time? It's about over like 30 plus years. It's a long wow. term. If you pay 2% in fees, that's over 50% of your gains going straight into their pocket. So this math is really counterintuitive. A lot of it's people- really counterintuitive. Yeah. I know it's true and yeah. I still get tripped up by that. So I'll, I'll give you a, a quick story of a young woman who wrote me on Instagram. And she's read my book and she goes, Ramit, I think I'm overpaying for this financial advisor, but I'm not sure. I said, okay, tell me your information. She's 31, she makes about 80K a year and she was paying 1%. I said, cool, how much do you think over the course of your lifetime you will pay in fees? And she had no idea. I said, just take a guess. She goes, 30 grand. I said, okay, how do you feel about that? She said, 30 grand over the next 30 years, I feel okay about it, sounds fair. I said, great, let's do a couple quick calculations. So we run the numbers and I told her, you know, your income will probably increase a bit, da 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 your investments. It turns out she thought she was paying 30K in fees. She would actually pay $315,000 in fees. So I tell her this and on Instagram, she's like, no, no way, <laughs> this cannot be real. I go, it's real. And so this is one of those things that sounds really boring. Oh, fees, I'm, you know, who, who really cares 1%? But you could take $300,000 and use it to go out and have a blast, mm. buy a house, invest more, spend it on the things you love. And so we want, even in a time like this where th everything seems so crazy, it's actually not that crazy. We know what to do when there are low interest rates. We know that- What do we do? Well, I actually don't know. Like okay. I am horrendous at investing money. Yeah. And I was, I'm good at making money. Yeah. I'm not good at investing money. Well, you don't have to be that good. Are you good at like breathing oxygen? Yes, okay. I'm you practiced anyway. Exactly, because you've done it a ton of times. You don't think about it. Great investing is not sitting there looking at some Bloomberg terminal and, and choosing the right stock. It's actually quite boring. It is setting up automated investing. It's having the money flow where it needs to go automatically. And if you do it right, you don't even think about it. You spend less than one hour per month on your investments. 
So here's what I find interesting about you, and this is the reason that I always love spending time with you. You're very practical. It's the advice that people should do. You also have a psychology background, so you know why people don't end up doing it. Yeah. The theme that I find most interesting right now is how much things have changed. So it's interesting to hear you echo that they really have changed. From the things that I get involved in, it may seem even more sort of dramatically different than it really is, but I'll walk you through some of the things that I think you're up against with this very sage advice. Yeah. But we're living in a moment now where investing is attracting younger and younger people. They have a sense the system is broken. Mm -hmm. They don't know what that means, but that something doesn't work, and so people are trying to find that like quick flip, that quick buck. You get crypto coming, which I heard you say, you may have changed or you may have doubled down, that people that invest in crypto are crazy. <laughs> I think crypto is fucking interesting yeah. as the self-professed guy that is not good at investing, so take that for what it's worth. Um, but there's something happening now between crypto, between GameStop, Wall Street bets, the way that like the collective of people can fuck up hedge funds. Like There's something going on right now where there's a casino mechanic mm -hmm. and people are getting really into this casino mechanic, like even NFTs, which I don't think of as an investment vehicle, but I am very excited about as a technology, but that's drawn me into this world where I see just a gaggle of people treating it like a casino, essentially. Yeah. And now that it's sort of high risk, high reward, lots of fun, ding, 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 flashing lights, how many people do you think are getting pulled in in a way that's exciting? Like, hey, now you've got 17-year-olds creating YouTube content around investments, which is real, and I am utterly shocked by that. And how much of this is like, oh my God, we're heading towards a cliff? Um, <laughs> that's a great question. Okay, let me start off with what happened with my first investments. So here it is, it's around 1999, 2000. Everybody thinks they're a tech genius. You put money in any stock, it goes up 26% the next day. So what do I do? I take my college scholarship money and I put some of it in the stock market thinking, this is easy guaranteed money. Guaranteed 20%. Yeah, Here guaranteed, we go. guarantee. And every day it's going up and down, but mostly up. Was there massive euphoria? I wasn't focused yes, on this at all at this yes. time. Yes, everybody was, um, everybody believed they're a genius. So in a bull market, everybody believes they're a genius. And um, they all say the same phrase this time it's different. So funny. It's, it's such a funny phrase that in the investment world, people make fun of it. It's a, they're mocked because it's never different. It's actually the same thing. Bubbles expand, uh, but over time, they mathematically cannot continue. So here we have people making millions of dollars who would otherwise be working in a parking garage, and they are giving stock tips out and telling everybody, you gotta get into this, JDSU, this, you know, all kinds of stuff. So I take my college scholarship money, put it in the market, and I very quickly lose half the money. Because of the crash? Yeah, or? because of the crash. And so what happens is I realize, oh my God, I'm not as smart as I thought. It's not easy to become a millionaire through investing in two weeks. And so here is where there was a pivotal moment. One, I could have doubled down and said, I just picked the wrong stock. Let me pick another stock. This is very similar to what you hear with people in the crypto world. Well, my investment, quote, investment dropped 50%. But, you know, I gotta do this coin or that coin, et cetera. What I chose to do is go a different route and say, you know what, I don't think I'm that smart about investing. And I actually wanna learn how fundamental basic investing works. So things like low cost, long term, 
things like reading about John Bogle's philosophy, et cetera. And I started to learn about it. And I realized you could spend your entire life trying to trade, but traders hardly ever make money over the long term. And if we were gonna define trade, timing the market. Yeah, it's like- I understand this stock, it's undervalued. I'm gonna buy because I know it's going And I'm gonna do it short term, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna create this narrative that, ooh, this stock, look at the trading, look at the chart, and I'm gonna try to make quick money in, in four weeks. Everybody now knows somebody who trades. Those people almost all lose money. You'll notice, they're your best friend when they're making tons of money. Hey bro, I made uh, 600% in this stock. When it goes down, you don't really hear from them, okay? <laughs> That's called survivorship bias. Those people simply disappear, mm. but they're really loud when they're making money. And you learn that mathematically, even top Wall Street investors, over 80% of them don't even beat the market. What does that mean? It means that you watching this show right now can pick a simple Vanguard fund and you can beat over 80% of these fancy Wall Street suits. These guys were paid over a million dollars a year. This stuff is really hard to believe. It's really hard to believe because it's counterintuitive, like 1% fees can be 28% out the door. Um, people also don't understand a compound growth. So for example, people, a lot of people right now are really dissatisfied. Hey, I don't have enough money. I'm not gonna ever be able to afford a house. And so therefore, I'm gonna have to invest in these high-risk investments that are pure speculation. What's really happening there is they don't understand how compound interest works in one year than the last 20 years combined. Because of the Because of compound interest, yeah, because of how it works. So is it really as simple as one doubling to two isn't very interesting, two doubling to four is not very interesting, but when you start getting to a thousand doubling, that becomes real interesting real fast. And it happens, and we know the math. If you plug in your numbers to a compound interest calculator, you can predict essentially down to the month and year when you will become a millionaire. And the, does that calculate a doubling every seven years or is that a made up thing? No, that's the, you can choose, change your assumptions. I generally choose a 7% return rate, seven to 8% because historically that's what we know happens and that factors inflation in. So at roughly seven to 8%, your money's doubling approximately every 10 years. And people are gonna get that by putting it in the stock market yeah. and Letting forgetting it there about it. And just contributing to it every single month. Dollar cost 50, average. Yeah, 50 bucks, 500 bucks, 5,000 bucks, whatever works for you, that's how it works. That's simple boring. So a lot of people watching this going, oh, this old guy, this Luddite, I, I prefer crypto, it's really exciting. Listen, investing is not about excitement. You want excitement, get a dog, get, watch a TNT drama. Investing is boring. It's like watching concrete dry, and it should be. The real fun is what you do with your money, how you live a rich life. All right, before we get to that, yeah. I wanna like really drill down. So I'm currently not taking your advice, okay. and <laughs> you can legitimately just point out all the things that are stupid. Okay, so, but this, I'll is give my, you, this is my fantasy. All right, go ahead. I'll give you my sort of thesis, the way that I think about it. So um, the because we're printing so much money, that scares the life out of me. I'm super ignorant when it comes to economics and money, so now I'm just operating on emotion. And I'm like, okay, okay. people are printing just like metric shit tons of money that does not seem like a sustainable thing. So I tell my money manager, hey, I wanna be as close to my money buried in the backyard as humanly possible. She's like, this is a terrible <laughs> strategy because of inflation, like you don't understand your money's gonna get cut, but I was thinking sort of that same thing, one to 2% a year, whatever, like I have plenty of time to figure this out. Then I start listening to Michael Saylor, who's like, A, that 
might not be the real inflation rate. It might be substantially higher. And when you get to, I forget the exact number of inflation, but if it's like at 15%, you cut your money in half in like seven years or something ridiculous. And I was like, what? So then I was like, okay, now I'm paranoid about that. But when I look at the stock market and it's, and I don't know where we are today, but it's like, it was at the time that my money manager was like, you need more exposure to the stock market. I just kept thinking, I've made a lot of money. Uh I believe I will make a lot more. I just want to protect my downside. I'm not trying to grow my money. I'm just trying to like maintain my money. And the idea of buying into the stock market, even dollar cost averaging, when it seemed so clear to me, this has to be a bubble. Like you said, it just cannot go up forever. Uh So there has to be some sort of correction and the economy shut down. So I was like, how the fuck could this possibly But of course now, because I didn't have much exposure to the stock market, I had some, but I didn't have much exposure to the stock market. It's like up 28%. Yeah, you missed out on millions. 100%. Okay, no doubt. Let's talk about this. So, but am I about to like be the one who's laughing when this finally all corrects? Well, That's nobody knows. First of all, nobody knows. And if you bring anyone on the show who tells you what's going to happen in the stock market, they're an idiot and, and or they're lying. So I'm not going to do that. Nobody knows. And you'll find this in politics and money. A lot of people want to be comforted by essentially a parental figure. Somebody who comes in here and tells you it's all going to be okay. Or conversely, it's all going to shit. And they prey on people's weaknesses as to what's going on. The best investors are humble. They know that nobody knows anything. What do we know? We know that over time, the market continues to return approximately 7 to 8%, and that's over 100 plus years. We know that there are always people on Reddit and Twitter who've got these fanciful narrations of what's going on in the world, and they all disappear once the narrative is proved incorrect. So people have been talking about inflation forever. This is very low inflation. And in fact, even the recent inflation numbers are I think over 30% of it is due to used car prices, okay? Uh, If you try to peg your investments to macroeconomics, you will be potentially losing out on lots of money. Now let's talk about your situation. Your situation is different than the people watching this. You already have a lot of capital. So if you're somebody who's 25, 30, 35, and you're trying to grow your wealth, that strategy is gonna be different than your strategy, Tom. So let's break them both down. For the person who's in the wealth accumulation phase, right? They have a job, they wanna make some more money, great. The best strategy for them is low cost, long-term investing. Take some percentage, I'd recommend at least 10, preferably 20% of your gross income if, if you can. Of gross, well, pre-tax. I like, well, I like to be aggressive. My if you man. can't do- If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start, run, and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you, back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly 
and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Do 20? Go ahead and do 10. We're going to point him to a Vanguard? Just something real simple. Really simple. No, I know you've I got feelings. No individual investor should be using Robinhood. Is that how Robinhood works? Like they're day trading on your behalf or they're encouraging you to day trade? Like what's uh, They that? are encouraging you to trade. Um, and you can see this through a variety of the design principles they use. They give you free shares. We don't want to be engineered into trading. Trading is the enemy for real investment returns. We want boring, simple. That's where the real money's made. So when I talk to my friends, who are high income earners, and I, I ask them, you know, we talk about their investment strategy, and they go, yeah, I just have it all in Vanguard. I'm like, these are the people who have serious money. Because the others have a lot of earnings, but they're trading it all. And as we know, even 1% fees can reduce it. Trading, taxes, those dramatically reduce your returns. So back to our 35-year-old friend. They want to accumulate some money. They say, okay, I'm going to automatically contribute 10, 15, 20%, whatever they can do aggressively. And at first it seems really boring. Oh, I'm putting like a hundred bucks a month or a thousand bucks a month. That's not that much. But what they forget is that not only do you keep adding that, but over time the market tends to go up and we know what happens. So your money isn't just doubling every 10 years. It's actually much faster than that because you're contributing more. And suddenly they wake up and they go, oh my God, that's a lot of money. And in three years, I'm going to have more money from that than I get from my job. Wow, now you have some serious opportunity. You can choose whether to work there, start a business, go part-time. Are there different Vanguard account types? Yeah. So the thing that I really like for simple investment is called a target date fund. If you're 35, you know that you can just assume you're gonna retire at 65. You might retire earlier or later, but just assume. And so you would pick a Vanguard fund, like a 2050 fund. What is that? Imagine you have a pie chart. In that pie chart, you have basically two different kinds of investments, equities or stocks and fixed income or bonds. Equities are more aggressive. They tend to outperform uh, bonds. What a target date fund does is you just pick one fund. That's it. Just one. Put all your money in there and it automatically um, reallocates over time. How did I pick that fund? Is it just like just by age? No, no, it's just by age. So they do it. Yeah. So you tell I them. I just say, Hey, I want to retire by 65. I'm currently this age. Bingo. And then they and go, will say, I'm going to put you in China. No, no, no. They say, I'm going to put you in the Vanguard 2050 fund. 
So it's 2050 means you're going to retire in 2050. But how are they thinking about that? Is this like the world's most diversified portfolio? Yes. Is that sort of their it's basic? It's automatically diversified. So it has uh, international Not exposure. Automatically diversified. There's a human in this somewhere, even if it's just a human programming AI. Well, they have chosen to diversify in these target date funds based on this criteria. What they do is they the include. The head model? Yeah, yeah. So they include value investing. No, it's not. It's not necessarily value investing. Give it us is, the thirty-second breakdown. So when you invest, a, a lot of people will pick some stock. That's like me going over to your house for dinner, and you go meaning some specific stock. Yeah, they'll pick like this Tesla. stock. Yeah, they'll pick Tesla. That's like me going over to your house, and you go tonight we're eating salt. What? <laughs> That's not a meal. A meal includes your proteins and all kinds of other things. In your investment portfolio, if you just have Tesla, you might feel really good. You might say, hey, Ramit, nice investment strategy, but my investment's up 400%. Cool, I'm glad. But over time, that cannot sustain itself. Mm. And so when that goes down, you wanna have other investments that, that are going up and diversify. And again, yes, you may lose out on a little bit of gains. Like if you had picked Apple or Amazon, that would have been nice. But you have to remember, most people don't pick Apple. They don't pick Amazon. And so the people who pick it are usually too late. They're Meaning called they mom and pop. they just pick something dumb. Yeah. Mom, they were hyped on it for some that's reason. That's why they're called mom and pop investors. That's an insult. Mom, ma and pa are the dumb money. The dumb money are random retail investors who are sitting in their basement using E-Trade or Robinhood. The sophisticated people are on Wall Street, and even they can't pick the winners more than 20% of the time. So... A target date fund automatically diversifies internationally. If I'm the guy on Wall Street, like I'll let this person remain nameless, but there's somebody in my life that I know and love, care about, think they're amazing, okay. and they like to day trade. It gives them a sense of purpose. They do a lot of research and all this. And I remember one day I just thought, are you up or down all time? Mm -hmm. They're like, down. And I was like, what are you doing? Like if, and they had been in it for 15 years. Yeah. So it wasn't even like a, a brief period of time. And I just thought, that's so interesting. It's like adult baseball cards. Yeah. You know what gives me a sense of purpose? Having a huge investment portfolio. What does that mean? I want a portfolio that takes basically no time. Huge from a dollar perspective? Yeah. Huge. So I put it in something really simple. Target date uh, fund or a series of index funds. What percentage of your net worth is in a target date fund? Uh, I would say... Not a target date fund. Now, I have index funds, a series of index funds, as well as a, I've had a target date index fund. Index meaning people don't fucking day trade it. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's like a, a group of companies yeah. grouped in some way, S&P 500 or whatever. Yeah. It's basically what's inside of a target date fund, but just taken outside of it. Um, simple, low cost, et cetera. Over 90% of my net worth is in index funds. So How many different ballparkas index funds are you in? Mm, less than 10. Now, is that because Ramit is more clever than other people? And you no, just know it's which funds? No, it's because I have a larger net worth. So at and higher- And so you don't want to cram it all into one thing. Th that's correct. Because at for 99% of people, a target date fund is a fantastic investment. Why? It's one place that you invest. You do not have to choose all kinds of crazy stuff. Two, and this is really important, it automatically gets more conservative as you get older. Now, if you're watching this right now, you're like, I don't care about that down the road. But think about it. When grandma and grandpa were in 2008, and we all heard these stories of people losing 50% of their net worth overnight, those older folks should have never been invested that aggressively. 
a target date fund will into protect high them. risk things. Into equities. They should have had more conservative investments. Bonds. Yeah. And so you Would you, you do bonds not bonds like the kiss of death right now? No, there's a big debate about whether or not people should even buy bonds or have cash or whatever. But you have to remember, the average person watching this right now is not reading all the intricacies of bonds mm. versus cash and yields. They're like, I just want my money to go where it should go. So we have to be humble enough to recognize you do not want to be a professional money manager. You even said you have somebody you call. Most people just want their money to grow. They want it to be relatively safe. They're willing to take a little up and down, but they don't want to think about it. They spend more time looking at a Yelp review for dinner on sunset than they do picking their investments. That is terrifyingly true. Yeah. And so instead of fighting that, let's just acknowledge it. Hey, I am never going to sit here and read all this stuff. And by the way, even if I did, that doesn't predict better returns. So I'm going to pick a simple investment strategy. I'm going to automate it and I'll spend one hour per month on my money. Done. And over time, I'm going to accumulate a very, very substantial portfolio. And I can take amazing vacations. I can provide for my family. I can have fun. That's a rich life. Okay, this stuff gets really interesting, but I think there is a layer of complexity that it's wise for people to begin to pull back. So, um, all right, low cost means low fees. So that's an important thing. Vanguard funds are the place to start. Vanguard is great. I don't want to, I'm not pitching Vanguard. It's where I have a lot of my money. Why not pitch Vanguard? I, li I like them. I just don't, I want everybody to know but I don't have hedging. a deal with them. Fair. No, there are other companies that are also great. You can choose... You know, Fidelity has a lot of great low-cost funds. Um, is Schwab what makes them great fund. that they have the same theory as yeah. the Vanguard fund? Um, no. Vanguard, in my opinion, the reason I have my money there is that the firm is built on low-cost. So the entire DNA of the firm is low-cost. Um, there are other firms like Fidelity that did not start off like that. They started off charging high net worth investors a lot of money. Now, because of Vanguard, they had to lower their fees because they were getting eaten alive. And so they did add these things, but they always have this DNA of let's charge higher fees for high net worth people. Now, if you want to pay, let's talk about fees for a second because I think this is interesting. I have no problem if you want to hire an advisor and pay a premium price, 500 bucks an hour, 5,000 bucks for a review. I have no problem. Pay it. For, for if you have a specific complex situation or your high net worth, you want a second set of eyes, great. Most people would rather pay $250,000 in hidden fees than pay $10,000 out of their pocket. Do you realize how insane that is? Yeah. They would rather pay 250 grand in hidden fees. And even when I tell them, hey, look at that 1%, let's do a little bit of math and I'll show you how much it adds up to. It's on paper, it's math. They go, ah, 1%, he's a nice guy. I go, you know, I'm sure he's a nice guy. Take him out to a baseball game and save $240,000 and go out with your husband or wife. That's how crazy our psychology is around fees. So I was fortunate, God bless me. Um, I wound up getting found out guilty because it's called fruit of a poisonous tree. So they kicked in my door, but they didn't have probable cause because they stopped me in my truck, didn't find nothing on me. So they went to my house, kicked the door in with no search warrant. So now everything you find is null and void. That's purpose, man, because that's not supposed to happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking for that all the time. And then... Um, but that put me in a situation because now, even though it cost, it cost me $60,000 to beat that charge, I don't have no money. Mm. So now I get into the robbing game. So now I start robbing dope dealers, right? Because an OG told me that 
a person who works a job every day, they're not a part of this game. So they're not fair game. They, you don't mess with them. But somebody who sells a nickel bag, he fair game. Mm-hmm. A shark don't care if it's a tuna or whatever. If you're in the ocean swimming, you fair game. And so I started robbing dope dealers at the time because I was like, yo, if you want, you can't call the police. If you want to see me, see me. I'm with it. And I got in a situation where um, I was good at it. Me and my partner, God bless his soul. And then one day I almost got killed. And I go to my partner and I say, bro, I'm out. Like, that's a done deal. But when they kicked my door in, something happened. So they took my truck. They took my money. But they didn't mess with my stock account. It didn't freeze. It didn't. I said, hold up. They don't think I'm smart enough for this. Mm. In the book, 40 Laws of Power, it says, uh, never underestimate your opponent. And at that point, I realized that America underestimates us. And it's not, it's from a class issue because we've never said we're capable of doing this. It's a game we just didn't play. So I said, okay, God, what do you want me to do? All I know how to do is be a hustler. And the voice from 1999 comes in my head and says, you're just playing the wrong game. I said, oh, okay. Start working as an iron worker, building stadiums, building power plants. It's crazy because I was making good money, $2,000 a week. That's good money to something. Like, yo, $2,000 a week? Yo, that's it. $2,000, $2,500. Like, it was amazing. I started saving and investing 70% of my money. God damn. I was living bare minimum. I was like, if I'm going to change, I got to make, like, the hard choices. It's hard for people to make sacrifice because you got to now go, go against and do without some of the things that gives you that momentary gratification, that simple, that... Ah, that's what keeps you alive. That's what keeps you going. Just to go on vacation one time a year to get these pair of shoes that may cost me a thousand dollars. I know I can't afford them, but I've worked so hard. I need that right. just to keep giving yeah. me something. And so I was like, okay. And once I started doing it, man, and I started showing my homies in the street that it was a game changer. It changed my life. Were you showing them the, your portfolio? No, I was showing them. Yeah. yeah, I was like, yo, look, I'm about to end. This before Robin Hood even existed. Mm. Right? So I'm on E-Trade at the time. And I'm like, bro, check this out. Man, we go get, we go to the club, bro, and we buy bottles, Hennessy. We buy Moet. We buy Louis Vuitton. We buy Fendi. Yo, we can own that. It was like, what? Like, yo, there's a stock called LVMH. Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, but you can get it on the market as LVMUY because it's in France. And it was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, man, look. I'm like, listen, bro, we upgrade our iPhones every year. We can own Apple. And so now we own Apple, we own iPod. Bro, we wear Timberlands every day. And so that was like, they got it, but it was like, I see it, but I don't know. And I was like, all right. And so then I had an idea. I said, check this out. We know the end result of being in prison. I've been shot, you've been shot, you've been shot. We've did some shooting, we've all been to jail. Who suffers? Like your kids, your moms, your girl. I said, at least what we gotta do is if we gonna play the game, we gotta at least reward them for us playing the game. I was like, so what we gotta do is invest our money for them. So we making 10, $5,000 a week, if we can do that, if we can make $20,000, but we got to give them something. If it ain't cash, we got to at least put something up for them. Because if we gone for 10 years, what they going to do? We can at least have that for them. And then I was told one of my partners, I was like, listen, bro, you need to invest the money. Because he was making more money than me. 
I said, what happens when you get knocked off? Because one thing, you know it's, your time is coming. So you live the game until it's your time. You understand that. What happens when you go do a five, 10 year bed and you come home and nobody can't give you money? At least if you got it in a stock market, when you come home, you up. Mm. Your money been working for you for 10 years, five years. You ain't gotta ask nobody for nothing. You can go up to the re-up, man, what you got? He was like, damn, that's smart, bro. <laughs> And so my idea was like, how do we get, how do we start changing the mindset? And some people might be like, but why would you tell them that? Because what happens is you got to start somewhere. Mm. You got to make the game winnable in the language that we can understand. And so once you learn English, now you say, you know what? I want to learn Spanish. I want to learn French. I want to learn that because now you understand the power of words. And so once they started understanding the power of the game, it was like, okay, I can play this game. And so it was powerful for me when my home is in the street, started investing in money. That was a game changer for me. When my homies in the street who didn't finish school, who didn't go to college, started telling me, man, I bought some Apple, bro. Mm. I bought some Microsoft, bro. I bought some Nike, bro, because I'm about mm. to get them new J's. So I'm about like, that was powerful for me. Yeah. We made the game winnable. Dude, th- you have a phrase, Wall Street looks like us now. Wall Street looks like us now. There's another phrase you say, but you should like put that same like fucking stamp on mm-hmm. it is I own that. I own that. Because you talk about stocks in a way that sounds so rad <laughs> where it's like you refer to yourself as an owner of the companies. Yes. And, and the thing is, it actually is true. Like mm-hmm. you're not playing a linguistic game. It is true. Mm-hmm. But people don't think about it like that. But mm-hmm. it's so much more powerful than having a cool pair of kicks is to say I own the mm-hmm. company that makes those kicks, mm-hmm. or I own the company that makes that phone, or you know Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, works for me. I'm a shareholder, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. Explain that basic idea of ownership for people that might not quite put it together that stocks really are owning that company. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually got that term from Warren Buffett um, in one of his meetings. I want to say it was a 1995 shareholder meeting, and he said that um, he owned great. Owning a stock is like it's owning a percentage of a great business. And so when, once I understood that concept, I understood that the key to wealth is through ownership. Like that's what, that's, that was one of the things that made it click because I studied the wealthy people. Like I studied them. Yeah. Um, and I was like, damn. Even when you go back to Black Wall Street, O.W. Gurley, the reason why he bought, he has the 40 acres and those acreages, one of the things he did was he said, I'm going to sell these pieces to my people so they can have ownership. I was like, damn. When you study Reginald White, one of the first black men to make a billion dollars on Wall Street, it was about, he wanted it to have ownership. So I said, the key to building wealth is not how much you can work. You can't work your way to wealth. You got to invest your way there. And all wealthy people, black, white, Asian, Chinese, they own a whole bunch of shit. The people who aren't wealthy is because they don't own nothing. You only have your money sitting in cash. If your money is just sitting in cash, realistically, you're becoming poorer every day. Right. Or they own depreciating assets. And that's what cash is. It's a depreciating asset because the more money they print, the more money that money loses value. Right. So if it's just sitting, in, it's the reason why the bank wants you to have your money there. So they can take it and use it and invest <laughs> it so much and be like, hey, it's just sitting, I'm going to give you 50 cents on whatever you had in it. Right. And so the idea of ownership was, yo, we can just start owning everything that we, no matter if it's just a stock. 
Like that's powerful because if you can start owning the businesses that you now consume every day, you turn a one-time transaction to a lifetime of profit. And that was major for me because if I go to a store and buy a pair of Nikes, that's a one-time transaction. In order for me to get something from them again, I got to come back and buy another pair of Nikes. Mm. But if I own the Nike stock, long as I own it, it's a profitable um, vehicle for me. So that one-time transaction be- can become a lifetime of profit if I own that business. If I'm a buy Apple, if I know I'm an Apple user, if I know I got the phone, I got the AirPods, I got the MacBook, I got the PC, I got I'm excited when Apple's about to drop something. Why wouldn't I own it as much of it as I can, right? Like if I if I understand that concept, if I know people gonna America has one of the biggest trash problems in the world, right? So if I know that waste management is a company that's gonna be here forever because we aren't gonna stop throwing things away, why don't I own that company? Because I know everybody throws things away. And so now instead of me getting excited about Apple Lime being around the corner because it's a new phone, I'm like, yo, y'all about to make me some money. <laughs> right? So when I hear a company like Waste Management has bought 40 acres of disposable land for another landfill, I'm excited about that. And another great thing about the stock market is, for me, it now makes me pay attention to the world. And so now I understand what's going on in the world. I started learning business cycles, market cycles. You know what I'm saying? Like, because now I can understand, yo, this is okay. Things are going out of business. It's okay, we're, we're in this cycle. Okay, people are hiring. Okay, we're in expansion cycle. And so now I started to take, I took an economic class on my own without just understanding the world. And so you start understanding when something is happening in China. Okay, something happening in China. So I own Apple. Apple is, has 20% of their revenue in China. Okay, they might take a little hit right now. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. the stock market helped me start understanding how the world moves, the fundamentals. Right. Right? And so that's important. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. I really hope people, I don't know, I really hope people pay close attention to you because even in this interview, they're not going to understand how much you know. And I've listened to hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of <laughs> your footage. You, and I'm just like, fuck. So one thing I want to, I want to be on mm-hmm. record as saying, and you can play this on a loop on your fucking website, whatever, is that I can afford any money manager I want. Mm-hmm. And you are as knowledgeable as the money manager that I have. I'm very impressed with your ability to explain these concepts. And so that's important to me for a couple of reasons. One, there, there are certain people that are only going to listen to you 
-hmm. So it's great. So they now have access to, I'm telling you, world-class information. And then number two is the journey that you've been on. You started on the streets, were Mm -hmm. homeless, in prison, like really caught up in the lifestyle. And through knowledge, you have transformed your life and your family's life. And if they can believe that you can do it, they have what I call the only belief that matters. Mm -hmm. The only belief that matters is this. If you put time and energy into getting better at something, you will actually get better at that. And that is true for every human. Now, why is that the only belief that matters? Because your behaviors follow your beliefs and only behaviors matter. Mm. So if you invest in the stock market, even if you don't believe in it, Mm -hmm. your investment could still go up. Mm -hmm. If you believe in the stock market and know it's the surest path to wealth, but don't invest in the stock market, you'll never reap the gains. Mm -hmm. So getting people to believe that they can get better. Because what you've done is just read and study and research and spend time watching CNBC. And then you look, like I heard you once explain, oh, I'll see a ticker symbol go by that I don't know it. I don't sit there and waste time that I don't know it. I just go look it up. Yeah. And so now that's another ticker symbol. And for anybody that just heard ticker symbols, like what the fuck is a ticker symbol? Go look it up, Yeah. right? So you're such a powerful example of the power of knowledge. Mm. I think that's really, really interesting. So yeah, I I hope that this is, for people that didn't know you before coming into this interview, hopefully they'll spend more time because they'll see just how much you know. Man, thank you for that. And that's, I understand that uh, knowledge is what gives us leverage in life. It's not about how strong you are. It's about what you can learn. And then how can you actively apply that? I have this acronym called FEAR. Um, finally exiting average reality, right? And what happens is until we can overcome the fear, some people actually fear success. Mm. Success comes with a lot, right? But until you can overcome that average reality that you live in, no matter what you're on, once you become comfortable there, it becomes average. Anyone can live in average. Everyone can live in mediocrity, right? Then there's those outliers who consistently push themselves to go to the next level. LeBron spends $1 million on his body, working out, eating right, agility, mobility, because he will never be average. Mm -hmm. And the thing about the human mind and the human body, it will go as far as you push it, right? There's there's science that says that Gandhi levitated before the power of the mind. So you may look at it like, man, nobody can't levitate. (laughs) Get out of your mind. But there's a level of meditation, concentration, that you can lock into, that can take you there, as long as you believe in it. Like you said, the only belief that matters is what do you believe you can do? Mm. I personally believe that there is nothing I cannot do. And for me, it's all about impact, purpose, fulfillment. Like the money is a byproduct of everything else. That isn't my focus. My focus is I have a knowledge and information that I know that can change lives. Not just one life, not just like lives. And so the way that you change lives is by consistently learning, finding new ways to put that information out there, being able to open up, being able to be vulnerable because people need to connect. Mm. People connect to knowledge in the way that they can see two things that help people, imagery and vocabulary. What they see and what they hear, right? So most people won't connect to a certain knowledge because the people who speak it don't relate and two can't speak the knowledge in the way that they can eat it. Mm. So for me, it's always about how do I attain as much? It's always a challenge for me. How can I attain as much knowledge as I can? Because I love learning. Like I love learning. 
But then how do I take that and be able to now reciprocate or like give it to somebody who may not understand calculus or trigonometry, but if I can give it to them in this way, they can say, oh yeah, I got it. And there's more people that struggled in the world that has become successful. So struggle has to become a language that I'm, I struggle. So that's the language I'm great at. So if I can break down things into a struggle language now, I make it the game winnable for everybody. And that's the goal, to make the game winnable for everybody who's bold enough to step into the batting cage. Mm. If you bold enough to do that, I was bold enough to jump in a goddamn 152-foot <laughs> tank with sharks in Dubai. If you bold enough to do it, there's an experience that comes from that. And that experience is so exhilarating, it will take you to the next level. Mm. Because now you keep chasing the next level of you. And that is when you start understanding life at a whole nother concept, when you start understanding that, yo, for the longest, I was just low-level living. I was low-level thinking. Now that I've been exposed to something, and I say this often, whatever you haven't been exposed to isn't your fault. Once you get exposed to it, you now are accountable for it. And so once I've become exposed to so much knowledge and information, once I expose you to it, you accountable because now you can no longer say I didn't know. What do you say to people that don't think they have enough money to invest? <sighs> so the important thing for me to tell them is start where you are. You build a house brick by brick. I mean, of course, you can get a house put together all at once. <laughs> you know, we live in that I world I get now, the idea. Right? But you build a mansion. You build an empire. You build it brick by brick. Like you start with $25. If, and we have to understand, think, uh, RIP to Nip, man. A great, he says, something that's phenomenal. He said, we're on a marathon. We didn't get into the our situation overnight. Right? If we look back at our situations, you see that was, you inherited that whatever it is, that poverty. You inherited that, that mindset, that idea of scarcity, that idea that you don't have enough money. You inherited that. Building wealth becomes a revolutionary act because now you start saying, I'm going to go against what I was taught. Right? And so I say it by starting with $25. If you can do $25 a month, that's cool. If you can do $25 a week, that's cool. Because what happens is, once you start understanding the power of how your money works, you'll start saying, yo, I don't need to do that because that's taken away from this. Let me, that $25 will now become $50. This is something I see a lot. You look at Arnold Schwarzenegger and all the success he had in bodybuilding, he was able to translate into other areas of his life. The success that you had early in wrestling, you've obviously been able to translate what what's sort of the secret for you to to the level of success you've had? You know, it's it's interesting how similar uh, my wrestling mindset and, and business is, and it's not the same as a lot of people. In fact, I've had a lot of uh, people in the last few years I've kind of rubbed rubbed the wrong way because of it. But I look at it as a sport. So, like when I started my business, I was looking around. The first thing I looked at was like, who do I have to beat? I remember when we came in, there was a software company that was like, all right, that's our competitor, and it was like. I wasn't quiet about it. I made known to myself, to my team, to my entire community, like we're going to beat them. And then we went after them aggressively and aggressively. And, and uh, just like I would if I was going to be wrestling or competing against them, and I like I reverse injured everything they did. I figured out what they were doing, why they're doing. I listened to every podcast interview the founder was on and I'd understand his mindset, what he was doing. And we, we just like relentlessly pursued them until we caught them and then we passed them. And after we passed them, then I was like, it's funny because uh, I was like, I need something new to go after. And then there was another company that was bigger than, than them. And I was like, okay, that's the next company. We started going after them. And the same thing, I pursued them and like looked at them, reverse engineered what they were doing and how they were doing it, why they were doing it, and trying to figure it out. And I remember as we started getting closer and closer to them, uh, the CEO of that company called me one day. And uh, he was like, 
He's like, why are you so upset at like, why do you hate me and hate our company so much? Uh, I, and it kind of caught me off guard. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, he's like, you were out there always like trying to like, you know, do all these things to, to, to beat us. And I was like, oh, I don't hate you guys at all. Like, I have so much respect. Like, I know more about you than I think you do. Like, I understand what you do and why you do it at the level. I don't believe you do. Like, I don't, I don't hate you at all, but but you're my competitor. Like, you're who I chose and I have to beat you. Like, that's that's how it works. And he was like, I remember he came back and he was like, I, he's like, I wasn't really an athlete, so I'm not used to that. Like, he's like, it's interesting. I always thought you mad, you were mad at us you hated us. And I was like, no, like, and it reminded me of the scene in uh, my favorite movies, um, The Dark Knight, where at the very end when the Joker's falling off the, the, the cliff and Batman asks him, he's like, He's like, why are you trying to kill me? And the Joker starts laughing. He's like, I'm not trying to kill you. He's like, he's like, without you, like, there's no me. Like, I can't do what I do without you. And I feel like that that's been such my mindset. And in fact, you know, that we passed that company. And it's like, hey, who's the next people? And we found who they are. And I'm studying them and understanding them at a deeper level. And like, and so for me, it's I don't think I could be in business where it's just a business just to to grow or I don't know without a without a goal or purpose or, or something to to strive towards and, and to move 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 forward. I was I remember reading um I think it was Napoleon Bonaparte said something about um what man will do for a for a scrap of ribbon. I feel like maybe that's like in wrestling that's what it was for me. Like I had to like I had to go and I went to I was a state champ and then I was an all American. Like I kept going for the whatever the next scrap of ribbon I had to get it. And I feel like in business it's the same thing for me. It's just like it's a game, there's competitors and we're trying to figure out the landscape, where we fit in and how we how we pursue and how we go after them. Dude, I think that is genius. So as somebody, I didn't like being competitive when I was younger because I was afraid I was going to lose. And of course, I didn't want to say that. So I was just saying, or I may not even have understood it if I'm completely honest. There was just, it triggered some something in me, which I would now recognize as insecurity, which I can now articulate as I had this fear of having proof, empirical data that I wasn't good enough, which of course is my <laughs> biggest fear when I was a kid. And now getting into business and realizing, yo, motherfucker, like you've got to be going hard. And this is like, look, I like you. I would be shocked if somebody was was interpreting my competitiveness, my desire to win as hate. But it it is what I call the dark side. It is a dark energy, <laughs> right? There's the light side, which is the beautiful things I want to create and the gratitude I have for what I have in my life and all of that. And it's amazing. But then there's also the competitive side of wanting to win, of saying, look, I'm going after that person. And the people who – so I'm not a sports guy, but like – because of my mentality, I constantly find myself drawn to athletes. So I'll use that, that language, but please don't mistake me for an athlete. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when you talk to the guys that are really, really great and you look at the amount of tape they watch, like how they study their competitors, they study themselves, they stare nakedly at their inadequacies. It, it dude, there's something there. And the fact that people don't put in that time and energy to learn what is going on is crazy. The, the amount of insights you'll get are extraordinary. And that to me is, is the power. So as we go into um, this, which probably is going to be a recession, might be a depression, um, how do you think about overcoming the obstacles that are going to come your way? How do you avoid falling into the trap of thinking that you know everything already? Like, how do you stay nimble? Um. That's a good question, especially when, you know, at this point, our company's so big that you have a lot of friends who are solo entrepreneurs and they're able to be nimble because like it's just them and they can, you know, but now we've got 400 plus employees and it's a, it's harder to be, to be nimble. I think it's been interesting because I've been trying to, trying to figure that out. And, um, you know, one of our, our uh, mutual friends, Dean Graciosi, I talked to him about this a lot as everything started hitting and things started shifting. And, uh, and I remember watching him because I, 
again, I'm, I'm kind of a marketing nerd. So I remember when I was in high school, I used to sit back and I would watch info. Like I remember I watched Dean on infomercials back when I was a kid and like, I would take notes. I'm like, Whoa, like the way he said things. Um, and I remember watching, um, as it came up to like the last big recession, <clears throat> watching all Dean's infomercials. And at the time there was probably, I don't know, 30 different get rich in real estate infomercials on TV. Like anyone who ever flipped a house in their life were like, oh, I'm an infomercial guru and teaching people how to do it. Right. And, uh, and then the recession hit and, and the housing market crashed and it went from like 50 infomercial gurus to like three down to one. And then there was just Dean and Dean continued running infomercials the entire thing. And then, uh, and then, and then beyond. And I remember, I didn't know him at the time, but I remember watching it and just being interested how like he, he was the only one still on. And so I asked him later, how in the world did you, did you survive when everyone else got, got crushed? And he said something super profound. He's like, he's like, I didn't shift, I didn't shift, um, my product, I mean, my product was still the same. He's like, I shifted how I marketed my product. He said, everyone else was speaking very aspirational. Like, how do we, how do we create these things? You know, how do we, how do we get rich? How do we make money? Like things like that. And he's like, I shifted from being aspirational to, to looking at my business more as like a life preserver. Like, like, how do you, how do you protect yourself and how this product can, can protect you? And, uh, and so as we started coming into this thing, I realized the same thing. Like, um, in fact, I talk a little bit about in traffic secrets, I talk about, um, the fact that when any customers coming to you, they're, they're either moving towards you, they're, they're moving towards you in one or two directions, either they're moving towards pleasure or they're moving away from pain, right? It's like, they're coming to me cause they want to start a business. They want to get rich or they want to make money or they want to whatever, or they're coming to me cause like I hate my boss. I need to get out of this pain. Like it's just a miserable, I need to, I need to get out of pain. And if you look at the economy over the last, you know, seven or eight years, most, because for most people, it's been pretty good. Most people that are buying any product or service, whether it be fitness, health, you know, business, uh, anything for that matter, it's like they're buying it because they're trying to move towards pleasure. But, you know, a couple of weeks ago, everything shifted where people are all in pain now. And I think the companies are going to survive and be nimbler ones to understand how to shift their messaging where it's like, how can, how can the product or the service I sell, how does it get somebody out of pain? And that's the marketing and the messaging people need and they want right now. And uh, it's funny because like as I was launching the the traffic, I, I literally launched the book the same day that President Trump told everyone to go home. And if you look at like my marketing campaign ahead of time, it was like, you know, how we built this hundred million dollar a year company and how traffic, how much traffic we get, all these things. And then I was like, that is the wrong message right now. And so we we literally like with my team, I'm like, all right, everything, every ad we've written, every pre-sale, every video, like just delete them all. We're redoing everything. And like, this is the messaging. The messaging is, and we start talking about, uh, I got a, a buddy down the street who owns a, a local waffle place, the best waffles in the world. If you ever come to Boise, I'll take you there. And uh, and uh, he opened the same day that the whole recession happened. And it was crazy because you look at like he's got his business. He opens the doors and it's the same day that, that literally traffic, you know, usually restaurants, you have you have cars, like physical traffic driving by and people come and they they come and they eat. And he's like the traffic stopped. And what happens to all the companies? They just they die. Like traffic is the lifeblood of a company. And so the whole messaging shifted to like, look. Like if you want to survive during these times, then thrive on the other side of this. Like you have to master traffic and customers and getting people in. Like this is literally your company's life preserver during these uncertain times. So all the messaging shifted, the ads shifted, the like the like everything shifted, and uh, and you know the book launch has done insanely well, and everything's kind of come from that. But but it all came from like shifting the message from towards pleasure to understanding that we're in a time of moving people away from pain. And I think that the companies understand that and understand that shift in messaging are the ones that are gonna that are going to really win during this, this time. Yeah. One thing that, um, I think people need to be very aware of is where they're at in their life. Are you moving towards something or away from something? So I've always said that people fall into two categories and I think you're right. It changes actually depending on where you're at in your life, what's going on in the world. 
Um, but by nature, I would say that people are motivated by one of two things. Either they're moving towards a goal or they're moving away from a problem. I don't want to be broke. I don't want to be homeless. I, um, and then there's other people that are like, I want to achieve this goal. I want to win this. I want to be the best. And knowing where you come from will help you navigate the world in a much more um, sane, inducing way. Because if you're being sort of true to what aligns with you, like for me, moving away from something is never very interesting. It takes me into like a, a very uncertain, a very uneasy place. Whereas even if I'm in the middle of massive uncertainty and I have fears, for me to shift my energy, I need to pick a goal, something that I'm excited about. So that when I'm pursuing it, even though the outcome is going to be that I outrun this thing, right? I've been broke. I've had crazy debt. I've been in a place emotionally where I'm laying on my carpet and I just fucking, I don't have any idea how I'm going to create momentum in my life. So I know what that's like. But the things that got me up and moving were to believe that I could change, to believe that I could grow, to set a goal, to, to set a goal that I was excited about and then wake up every day and pursue that. And that was the thing that it... I think a big thing people have to do is like what, where are you at as a baseline reference point? If you're in looking at seeing all the problems and all the things that are wrong, you're not in problem solving mode. If you can shift over into problem solving mode. So I've heard you talk about that waffle um, restaurant before and you gave the guy some brilliant ideas about what to do. Like, hey, are you sending people text messages? And it's like, yeah, to be top of mind, to remind people. Um, you know, to incept them, but you have to be in that problem solving mode. Yeah. Is that something that you think about intentionally? Is that something you try to train your team to do? Is that, that to me seems like going back to what you were saying at the very beginning with your dad of like, all right, you can look at you at the fact that you lost or you can solve this problem. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, because I look at most business owners and like, I, and I know for me, I did it, I did it backwards the first way. Like a lot of times, we come up with our products or our services like we have an idea like, oh, I want to create this thing. We create it. And then after it's done, like now we got to figure out how to sell it and you figure out like a sales message and create that. And then it's like now I got to go find people to sell it to. And then we're, we're like, trying to find people. And it's like it's like backwards. Like if you look at the way that the most successful businesses grow. I look at the way that we grew ClickFunnels is when I had this realization of like I don't want to go and like create something and find somebody to sell it to. I want to go find the people that that um, that I'm passionate about serving and then just listen really, really carefully. Right. And I always tell people like the the um, the more money you make is uh, will be like the money you make will be in direct relation to how simple you make uh, somebody else's process. Right. So for me, it's like I help people build funnels to sell their products and services. And so, you know, when I when I taught people the strategies, here's how you do it. I made good money. When we made software that made it simpler. I made more money. When We had like done for you things, make even simpler, make more money. And it's always like, how do I simplify this process for whoever the customers? How do I make it easier? And 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 so like the mindset that we're always having in our here at ClickFunnels and me and my team is like we're sitting there and listening to our audience. Like, what is it they're looking for? What do they want? What are they struggling? And it's like, okay, how do we make this process simpler? And every good product, every good idea, everything that's that's been a winner came from that like listening and then like figuring out how to solve the problem. All the ones where it was like. Russell had this great idea at two in the morning. Let me go. Let's go create it. And our whole team gets together and then we like try to give it to people. Those those are the ones that don't typically do very well. Um, no matter how much like you know how much push force and money we put into it to try to get adoption, it's always harder than the opposite way. We're just listening to what people want and figuring out how's the best way to solve that for them. And um, anyway, that's like the the simplest thing is just listening. And then how do we simplify this from? How do we simplify? It? And you'll get paid more the better you become at simplifying processes and and uh, and things for people. I love that idea of simplification. That's something. So do you know Noah Kagan? Yes. Yeah, I do. 
All right, super interesting guy. And I think one of the things that makes him so effective, he said his superpower is making money. Um, and mm-hmm. what, But what he means by that is his superpower is in simplifying. It's in breaking the process down into immediate action. Um, and those two things, simplifying it and then taking immediate action to me are the exact things people need to be obsessively focused with right now. Because right now, like first and foremost, if you're in a dire situation, Take care of your basic needs, man. Like, don't worry about launching the next Facebook. Like, make sure that you've got a roof over your head that you can put food on the table, right? And that's where a lot of people are going to crash and burn is, yo, Maslow's hierarchy of needs has stood the test of time for a reason. Like, there are just certain things, safety, security, like get those taken care of. And you may have to do a job that you didn't want to do, or you may have to call people up and be banging the phones if you're trying, if you've got a product that really has value and fuck, like, you don't know how to get it out. Like, you've got to think like a direct marketer And this is like where I think my own story confuses people because like I'm so intense and, you know, I've got like that rah, rah spirit. But the reality is I'm not a burn the ships at the shore guy. Like I'm a, yo, keep your day job, man. Like when we (laughs) launched Quest, we had a software company. So during the day I was running a software company and nights and weekends I was making protein bars because I wanted to see if this would work. Like you're saying, make sure there's an audience before you go. Like we didn't get a warehouse and start buying equipment until we were selling protein bars I I don't even think we bought the equipment until we were already profitable. So we were making the bars by hand, which was pure insanity, (laughs) making the bars by hand ourselves nights and weekends to make sure that there was something real there. So what advice do you have for somebody who's like, yo, I just lost my job and I feel totally out of control. What can they do as a solopreneur to get like that first audience to get that first sale? Yeah. And I want to first off agree with you. People message me all the time like, like, oh, I read your book. I'm, I'm going to quit my job and do this thing. I'm like, no, like, no, don't quit your job and do the thing. Like, keep your job. Because, you know, as well as I do, that like when you have that, like, the uncertainty and, like, it makes the pressure so much higher and it makes it so much harder to, like, get creative and get figure things out when when those needs are met. It's so much easier to, to go figure things out. Um, but someone, like, it's funny because uh, I've had this conversation with some close friends who've lost their jobs who are freaking out right now. And, and, I, and I try to explain to them, I'm like, you have to understand that, like, the money didn't just disappear, right? Like we're in like this great wealth transfer where things are shifting around. Like um, I don't know if you know Perry Belcher, but he's one of my friends who owns survivallife.com. And you look at survival life in the last 30 days has made more money than the last like 10 years combined, right? Like Whoa. money is shifting over there. And you look at, you know, like it's not that it's disappeared. Like people still have money. They're just not going to the movie theaters and the restaurants. They're spending in other places. And and like it's understanding that. And so if, if your whole world just got pulled away from you, it's not that the money just just evaporated, just got transferred somewhere. So the first thing I'm doing is looking like where, like where is this getting transferred? Like what are the companies and the businesses that are making more money right now? Like they can't handle it, that they're looking for more help because, because man, all of a sudden because of this new circumstances, everything's just, just growing like crazy. So that's the first thing. The second thing I look at is like, what is the skill set that is the most valuable inside of a company? And uh, I've got a friend who's a dentist. I tease him all the time because, you know, most dentists, like, they're the dentist. They, like, that's the most important person in the business, right? I'm the person who, who does the thing on people's teeth. And I had this whole conversation. I'm like, you're not the most important person in your business. He's like, yeah, I am. Without me, they can't clean teeth. I was like, I was like, the most important person in your business is the person who can get customers to come in the front door. Because that person can't bring customers in the front door. You have no teeth to clean. Therefore, your skill set is useless. Like the most valuable person in any company is the person who we call them rainmakers, who can make it rain, who can bring people in. And so like that's what it comes down to like this book Traffic Secrets. It's like the person who can drive traffic, who can bring the customers in becomes the most valuable 
person in any company. I have friends who are so good at driving traffic that they literally will find a company that's, that's struggling or maybe on the downside and they'll come in and say, hey, look, I can bring you the thing that you're missing. It's the holy grail for your business and all businesses. It's customers. And I can bring you as many as you want, as often as you want. The only thing is like, I don't work for money. Uh, I work for equity. So if you want me to do this, I want 30% of your company. And people are like just handing them the company. Here you go. Cause you can bring, you can make it rain. You can bring me customers and you can bring leads. And so like I start shifting, like if I got to figure out a skill set in this market, it's like the most valuable thing I can learn is how do I make it rain for a company? And then I can go plug into companies I like, find a company, like whatever that is. But now you're so valuable that like when, when, you know, things start going down, like I figure like the dental office, the, the two last people standing is the dentist and the dude who brings in customers. Like they'll fire the receptionist, they'll fire the, the, the girl who does your teeth, like all that stuff gone except for the person who brings the customer in and the person doing the actual fulfillment of the service. And so like it makes you so valuable. I think that I'd be aligning with that, figuring out the, the markets, the industries, the businesses that are like booming right now. And then how can I go plug into those and become the rainmaker? Because then you can write your own paycheck from this point forward. And that's, uh, that's really the stability I think that all of us want is to be able to have that. And if you have a skill set like that, you become invaluable. All right. So let's talk about making it rain. So one of the cool things about Traffic Secrets is you took an evergreen approach. Anybody else writes this book, and I promise you it's going to be <laughs> something that goes out of vogue. I mean, honestly, with the with what just happened, it would have gone out of vogue before it even hit shelves. Um, yeah. So the fact that you stopped, you said one of the key things you did here was you spent the beginning just stopping and thinking about how do I make sure that this is something that lasts no matter what the season, no matter what's going on, no matter what. You said TikTok didn't even exist when you started writing this. Uh, by the time it came out, obviously TikTok is huge, but the principles all apply regardless of the platform. So what are some evergreen principles to being a rainmaker? So the first step is really identifying who your dream customer is at a deep level. Like most people are like, oh, like especially people that that only have one traffic, like one traffic stream. Like maybe they drive Facebook ads. Like they know, like, oh, here's my interest and my targeting, and that's who their customer is. But I'm like, no, you have to, you have to go deeper than that. Like really understand them at a deep level. Like know their likes and their fears, and like what they're interested in, where they hang out, and like the the, the better you understand that person, um, the more powerful step two is. So step number one is identifying who they are, and step number two is understanding that like the power of the internet is the fact that it gives us all all those crazy humans with the things that we're passionate about, the ability to like group together online in different spots, right? Say we pick health and fitness or biohacking, for example. So there's biohacking. Everyone who's passionate about biohacking, like they are hanging out together on certain blogs, right? There's there's maybe a dozen or so blogs that all the biohackers go, they read every single day, they're part of the, they're in the communities and they're on these blogs. And then you go to podcasts, like what are all the podcasts that the biohackers listen to? And there's a passionate, you know, super passionate audience and they're listening to all these you know, 50 different podcasts. And then what are all the Facebook groups that are in? And what are all the uh, email newsletters that they subscribe to? And so we start looking at traffic instead of like targeting on Facebook, we start looking at like where are all these pockets of customers, where are they at? And we start looking at that like, oh my gosh, there's 300,000 on this blog right here. And there's, you know, 2.3 million to listen to this podcast every single week. And you start finding these pockets of customers. And then our job is, as, as rainmakers, as traffic people is to come back and say, okay, here's all these pockets of customers. How do I get access to them? Like what's the best way to to get and infiltrate the, these groups. And uh, one of the strategies that we talk about in the book is the strategy called the Dream 100. And basically what the Dream 100 is, is, is not figuring out, like how do I get 100 customers, it's figuring out who are the 100 people that already have access to my dream customers. So who's the person who owns that blog that has 300,000 readers? Who's the, who are the, the podcast hosts that, that have, that have the, the followings and the people that they're, they're listening to, right? And so uh, one of the exercises I do inside, uh, I think it's page uh, 41 in the book, uh, I have a little graph in there. It says, okay, here's Facebook. And make a list of all the people in Facebook who have your dream customers already congregated. Like what are all the Facebook groups? What are the fan pages? What are the people that already have 
like your dream customers hanging out there. And then you go to Instagram, who are all the influencers that already have congregated your dream customers? We list out all the influencers. And then we go to podcasts and who's all the podcasters. And so you make this list and eventually you've got 100, 200, 300 people that have all of your dream customers on it. And now it's like understanding that I can go and I can, I can buy ads to the followings of these people and you should, but if I can like, if I can get to know and build a relationship with one of these people, like a gatekeeper of this community, they can click a button and open up the access to the entire community, right? Like for example, right now, I'm lucky enough to have you interview me on your, on your podcast and you've got a huge following of people who are gonna hear about the book and hopefully someone will come buy the book and it's like, it's giving me access to this huge thing. Um, and uh, it's, it's interesting, like we spend millions of dollars a month on, on ads, but so much we do in the business is, is building relationships with the people who have access to these huge audiences. And then um, what's nice is I can, I can spend more time and energy networking and marketing and building relationships and spending money because if I can get one of those people to say yes, it can sell 100 or 1,000 or more of my products. In fact, I don't know if you've gotten this far in the book yet, but I actually quote you in the book um, uh, from an interview you did where you were talking about when you guys built Quest initially, the first thing you did is you found here's all the influencers and you send them out uh, Quest bars with handwritten letters and you're like, hey, if you hate them, let us know. If you like them, let us know, but I just want to send you some of our stuff. And you did the same thing. You went to all these influencers, sent them your bars, handwritten letters, and then from that, a whole bunch of people loved it, started sharing with their audiences, and boom, it, it, I was assuming that's kind of the, the ground fire that initially launched, launched Quest, if I'm right. Yeah, 100%. And that is one of the most powerful strategies, the, both of those things. So one, are you able to identify your audience? And then two, are you able to um, put together a, a relationship? Like, are you able to bring value to that person, find some way to connect over time? Um, and that's where I say, like, you people have to take care of their needs first because to play this game right, it's not about the short-term dollars. And I've heard you tell similar stories to my own story, which is in the beginning of your journey, it was, or I'll speak for myself, though I've heard you say similar things. I'll, since the language I'm going to use is uh, maybe derogatory, I'll speak for myself. So uh, I did every get rich quick scheme you could imagine. So mm -hmm. when I was young, dude, I was about it. I was like, there was this thing for a while where I was typing for money. And I was like, yo, they were talking about how much money you can make, like, you know, transcribing things. And I was like, I'm about it. Let's do it. And I just tried. I tried selling insurance door to door. I did um, pyramid schemes it didn't i really believed in the product i was selling but still uh not necessarily a good look um and i just i wanted it to happen fast and once i broke away from that and i just started thinking about okay um i didn't obviously say dream 100 but really identifying like where is my customer base like the the people that would i would really be able to serve with this product where are they right? Which is something you wrote about in the book, niche out, like you got to pick a niche. Once you're niched out, then it becomes a lot easier to um, win in that, in that space, right? You're not competing against everybody and their dog. They're easy to find online. Uh, you can deliver a crushing amount of value. So doing that and then playing the long game and building relationships, not trying to get anything in the short term. Look, I'm not a fool. I get that acting in that way and adding value to somebody else, it ultimately does come back to you some percentage, not all of it, but like one, it feels good in the moment. And then two, you'll, you'll be able to weather a storm because there are going to be other people there for you. And it, it goes back to the story you told about Arsenio Hall, which um, I think <laughs> is really powerful. Tell people that story. It's it one, I, cause I have a follow-up question <laughs> about it, which is building a platform. Isn't the only way. And I'm super curious. Tell the story because the people need to understand the punchline before I can really, 
ask yeah, that question. <laughs> for sure. So one of the, uh, what I talk about in the book is one of the most uh, powerful ways to infiltrate your dream 100 and get to know these people is by having your own platform. Um, because like, what, like, what do I have to offer Tony Robbins? What do I have to offer, you know, these, these people that I've loved to be, you know, on my dream 100, like a lot of times they have everything. Like, I'm not going to pay them. I'm not going to, you know, so what I have to offer, the thing you have to offer is your platform. And I think, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to infiltrate your dream 100 and get to know people. But one of the most powerful ways for sure is that like the, like the reason why I met Tony Robbins initially in it, and I did a whole YouTube video, it's like 10 minutes long, showing a, a 10 year uh, journey I went on with Tony of helping him, serving him and doing all these things for him before eventually he promoted something for me 10, you know, a decade later. But it was like, the only way the door even opened is because I had a platform. I was able to help promote him on top of my platform and, and, and open the doors. And so many other people I've had a chance to meet all came because I had a platform to, to be able to offer them and it opens up, opens up doors you can't get otherwise. And so I'm a huge believer that people should start their own show. And it could be a YouTube show, it could be a podcast, it could be a blog, it doesn't really matter what, but something we can create a platform that you can leverage to, to get to know people that, that own your, your, your customers. All right, well then let's talk about that. So I think we're going to see the death of um, an influencer class as advertising revenues dry up. Um, so a lot of people that have been making it their livelihood, it's going to, I think, stop being their livelihood. But any time where there's massive disruption, there is massive opportunity. And I think there is going to be a whole new crop of influencers that actually figure out how to crack this nut. So what what are some of the, uh, as the king of something with secret in the title, what are the secrets to building a platform? Yeah, um, a couple things. Like number one is like you have to realize that first year you are not going to be good. Um, when I, when I, I remember when I started my first podcast, it was called the Marketing Your Car Podcast. And I called it that because um, I had a five-minute commute from my house to the office, and I was like, at least I know I'll be consistent because I'm just going to get my phone out, I'm going to click record, and I'm just going to talk while I drive. And I did a five-minute podcast every single day for, I don't know, five or six, seven years now. I mean, I still do. It's been, it's been a long, long time. And what's crazy is when I first set up, I didn't know how to track stats. The first three years, I had no, I just didn't know. Um, I just set it up, and I started recording, and my brother would pu- publish them, and I'd ask him if people were listening. He's like, I don't even know how to check. So we didn't even know. And I'm so grateful to know I didn't That's know. Amazing. because. Because I just kept publishing. I'm like, I'm driving anyway. Might as well do these things. And um, it was about 300 episodes in when we shifted it from the marketing uh, uh, in your car to marketing secrets. And that time we switched the platform. We set up the analytics. And my brother's like, oh, my gosh, we're getting like, I can't remember, like 10,000 people per episode listening right now. I was like, oh, I got no idea. This is amazing. And we started looking back at the stats. And you look at like how how little it was for so long. And then um, I remember one of my – this guy that came into my world who's one of our hyper successful students now. He was like, when I came in – you know, I, I started, I, I came in on like episode 300. And I was like, I'm going to binge listen to everything. So I started number one. He's like, man, the first like 40 or 50 episodes were so bad. He's like, you were the worst ever. He's like, but about 45, 46, you started like getting in, in the rhythm. And then like it started getting good. Now, like I love it. And so the first lesson is like, you have to publish long enough to find your voice. Like most people do like two episodes, like, ah, oh, no one's coming. But it's like, no, you have to like make this a commitment. You got to do this for a long time because at first no one's going to be listening. And that's okay because you're going to be really bad. But it's going to give you the ability to like find your voice. That's number one. Number two is, um, and I have an article here that from one of my friends, Nathan Berry, uh, he wrote a blog post called Endure Long Enough to Get Noticed. And he talked about, he said like, if you look at most good TV shows, like usually you don't find out with a good TV show until so it's like in season five or season six, right? Or, or uh, movies that are like, you know, the third movie, and then you're like, oh, I'm going to go back and watch all of them now because they, they've survived. And he said that, you know, so because there's so much content being created all the time, that us as consumers, we wait for the best stuff to rise to the top. And so the first reason why you're publishing all the time is because you're trying to find your voice. That's step number one. Step number two is you're doing it long enough that your dream customers can find you. And so it's coming down and saying, I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to do this. 
And I always tell my people like publish something uh, like at least 100 episodes. And by the time you've done 100 episodes, and I recommend at least like in a year window. So you're doing multiple times a week. If then in a year, you'll found your voice, your people have found you and you'll be financially free. And so far, anybody who's taken me on that challenge by the end of a year, they have done exactly that. They found their voice, the people have found them, they've been financially free. And so it's just wow. like one of those things that just, it's, it's scary, it's weird and it feels painful at first because it's not fun when you're really bad, but then you get in your stride and then it just, it gets really good. Yeah, I will echo that sentiment. So when I first started, um, this was back at Quest, I started a show called Inside Quest, which would be very recognizable to, to fans of Impact Theory. But when we first started it, um, even though I would say that if we all have some element of talent where we get just um, disproportionate wins, mine is for sure verbal ability. So uh, the more I have practiced, the more energy I put into being able to articulate a message, to be able to speak extemporaneously, I just got disproportionate returns from that. So somebody else might do the same thing. If I'm getting a 1.3x return on my time, maybe they're getting a 0.7, right? So for me, like that's a, that's a pretty big gap. When I started, I, I was so frustrated. No one was listening. I didn't think I was good at it. Um, and I went to my producer who I also happen to be married to. And I said, yo, I look, I'm, I'm running a, a billion dollar business over here. Like this doesn't make sense. I'm wasting my fucking time. Like, what are we doing? And she said over my dead body. And ironically, what the exact amount of time she said was, you're going to do this for a year. And she said, if at the end of the year, it's still not delivering, like you don't feel that it's delivering enough value to be worth doing it then we'll stop. But she was like, I really believe in this. I really think that you can add value to people's lives. So just take the time to figure it out. Take the time to let the audience find you. And of course, now at the time, it was just like one thing that we were doing to try. Honestly, it started as a way to add value to my employees. And now it's become my entire business model is predicated on creating content. So the, the platform, as you're saying, um, I think that's really, really powerful. Um, one thing I, I would just kick myself in the face if I didn't ask you about that you brought up earlier. Um, you've gone through cycles before. You've been in business for a very long time. You've dealt with downturns. I want to know emotionally, you said, you know, you're coming in and you're laying off half your people. Um, you've got to convince the other half to stay and you've got to be tied to the mission and all of that. How have you stayed passionate about what you do? How much do you think about the why of what you're doing? Um, how do you survive those downtimes emotionally? Ooh. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I think anyone who's created something amazing has felt this before. Um, it's funny cause when I got into business, like most people, I think I, I did a lot of the type from home and the selling door to, so like, I get it. Like we get in cause like we want the money and you start going after that. Like that's what the initial draw a lot of times is, is like, I need to make some money and after you start making money really quickly. Uh, you realize how unfulfilling that is. And you're like, huh, that was not that cool. And then, uh, and then you start seeing the success of the people that you're, whatever you're selling to the people. And then like that becomes this next level of win where you're like, oh my gosh, like because I did something cool, like that person had this big win. And that becomes this drug that's like, ugh, like at least for me, like it's unquenchable. Like I just keep, I keep wanting, I desire it. Like the more it happens, the more I want it. And the more, um, and so for me, like that's this thing. And so when, when things would struggle, um, I remember, uh, I remember I like, uh, I use boxers like my my mode of, of communication with most of the world. And so it's just a little walkie talkie app. And, and in Voxer, you can uh, if, if the message is really cool, you put a little star next to it. So my kids said a cute thing. I'll put a star next to it. When people, my friends or clients or customers send testimonials, I put a little star next to it. So and then you can go listen to all the stars you want. And so like when times were down, I'd go back and I would just go listen. And I click on the star section and listen. And I would just listen to like 30, 40 minutes of people tell me how I changed their life, what happened, how it worked. And it was just like. 
All right. And like listening to that got me back to the spot of like, okay, I got to do this. And then uh, my favorite, my favorite quote of all time is uh, Churchill, however long and hard the road. And he's talking, you know, to the, to parliament about this, this war they have to go on. And it's going to be brutal. All these things are how hard it's going to be. And, and then in the very end says like, we're going to, you know, victory, victory at all costs, victory, however long and hard the road. And so whenever I, I like listen to that, I re- like recenter myself, like this is where we got to go. And then it's like, all right, we're going victory, however long and hard the road, whatever's got to go, whatever we got to do, we're just going to go and we're going to go and we're going to go. And uh, that, that phrase, like however long and hard the road, like rings through my head all the time. Every time I'm tired or I'm frustrated, I think about the people, I hear about success and then, and then we go after it. And that's kind of the, the draw for me, the pull.